Last week I was speaking at um, our church in Whittam, and uh, I didn't print my sermon out, I just took my tablet, because it's usually fine, but it wasn't fine. <laughs> Three times it just froze in the middle of um, preaching, but um, so yeah, I've gone back to paper today, um, and I've probably missed a page off or something, so there you go. Anyway, um, this morning, uh, most of you, like, Welcome those if you're, if you're new or if it's one of your first times here. It's really good to see you. Do come and join us out the back for uh, a tea or coffee afterwards. Um, for those that are here more regularly, you know that I quite often like going back to a bit of history and we look at the, the context. Today we'll feel probably a bit more like that than, than normal. There is a lot of history in here. But you know why our Bible is a, a book of history. It's God's history of his work uh, on, this, on this earth and, um, and in, into the future. And that's what this, this book of Revelation is particularly about. So... It, there is a lot of history in our Bibles, and, um, and it's important that we understand the history and the context that those books were written in, um, for us to really kind of get to grasp of what was being said then, and to get to grasp of what it means to us today. So two weeks ago, we began to tackle chapter 9 of Revelation, and as I said then, if you found some of the imagery and language of this book tricky so far, it only gets more vivid as we continue on from this chapter. It gets even more tricky. But if we take our time with it and we really think about those things that are necessary to understand the book, things like the historical context of the time that it was written, the situations that those first readers were living in, how it refers back to the Old Testament time and time again, and how it relates to us today and every other generation that has read this book or will ever read this book. If we keep those things in mind, we will hopefully be able to make sense of it. I'm not going to say we're going to understand it all, and, and that's fine. You know, I don't believe that anyone, even John himself, who wrote the book, I said, I don't, I don't think that anyone's ever really understood it completely. John had lots of visions, and he's written those visions down, but I don't believe that he understood them um, completely and what they meant forever. But we can know it better, and I believe that the core message of Revelation is vital to all Christians. At its heart, like all of Scripture, is the story of God saving his creation, and how he doesn't want to do it alone. He wants to use you and I and billions of others to bring about his plans and purposes. Amongst all the crazy sounding imagery in this book is God showing us how to live out, a faith, uh, live out our faith as we partner with him in his eternal plan. So the last time we were introduced to these mutant sounding locusts, weren't we? The earlier part of chapter 9. Keep your Bibles open this morning if you've got them with you. Uh, if you haven't got one, there should be one in the, in the seats in front of you. Um, and you better see earlier on in that chapter 9 we had these locusts. Now what those locusts are, or what they're meant to represent, is not easy to interpret. Some would say that they're meant to be understood exactly as described, and that at some point these demonic creatures will be let loose upon the earth. Some would say that they describe man-made instruments of war, such as attack helicopters. Personally, I think that either of those views take the words too literally. They try to make sense for them then and there, so whoever's reading it, into their time and place. But I believe that there's a message behind the image of the locusts and of the terrible abyss that is far more important than trying to make sense of the nightmare scenario described by John. The purpose is to evoke the deepest fears of the reader, something that the book continues to do as the chapter continues. For those who have turned from God, for those who refuse to turn back to him, Judgment is terrifying. It will be the stuff of your worst nightmares. In fact, 
The reason that we find it so hard to comprehend John's vivid imagery is because it will be worse than we can imagine. For me, John's depiction of an abyss from which these terrible things emerge is not describing a real physical place, but instead I believe it relates to Jesus' own depiction of an abyss, the human heart, the place where he said emerges all evil things. The terrors emerging from the abyss in John's vision are physical depictions of the reality of sin and its effects that emerge from a heart where God has no place. As we said last time, our hearts are either a temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God on this earth, or they are a heart of darkness, an abyss in which dwells and emerges evil. The contrast seems stark, doesn't it? Either goodness or evil dwells inside us. And that can fool us into thinking that we're okay. I'm not evil, we may think I don't do evil things. However, if your heart has little room for God, it is a home for selfishness, it's a home for greed for envy, for anger, and for other such things. Then it is a dwelling place, not of God, but of evil. You are either a light on a hill, or you are a valley of darkness. And when we allow evil to take up residence within, those monsters will spill out of our lives and into the world in which we live, harming and destroying those around us. This morning, as we hear the sounding of the sixth trumpet by the sixth angel... And as this trumpet, trumpet blasts, a voice is heard from within the throne room of God. The voice is not God's voice, but instead it comes from the four horns of the golden altar. Just a little detail, if you look in Exodus 27.2, we read the detailed instructions for the building of the altar for the tabernacle. And these four horns were part of those divinely appointed plans. These aren't animal horns, don't imagine them like horse, uh, horses. Horses don't have horns. Uh, cows... <laughs> Last time I looked, didn't I? Uh, they're not like cow's horns or that sort of thing. They're these kind of like just angled projections. And they represented the might and the power of Yahweh. In 1 Kings 1, verses 50 to 53, we can see that they also represented refuge and safety. Anyone that held on to those horns were offered asylum. Again, the text takes the reader back to the past, back to the Old Testament. Scripture rooted in Scripture. Although this isn't God's voice, it speaks under his authority. God's sovereignty is again clear behind each and every command that is issued. So the voice gives a command to the sixth angel that he should release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. But just for a moment, I want you to use your imaginations. The year is 1215. You live in what is now modern-day Beijing. Over the last two decades, Genghis Khan and his Mongols have been advancing across much of China, destroying everything and everyone in their way. Even the Great Wall of China couldn't stop him. He didn't try and go over it, he just went round it. And now he's arrived outside your city walls. You've heard the stories. You know what monstrous acts these people are capable of. And there's no escape. The city is surrounded. But you know, Khan doesn't attack. He simply waits. He waits until the food runs out. He waits until you're doing terrible things to one another just to survive. He waits until you're at breaking point, and then he attacks. For the next month, him and his army unleash annihilation upon your city. People who would visit that city in the following year report that the streets were awash with human fat. A mountain of bones lay beyond the city walls. Sheer horror. Now put yourself in the shoes of a a Polish Jew uh, living in the city of Warsaw in 1939. Adolf Hitler and his Nazi forces are advancing against the capital 
after carving their way through your country. Now 175,000 Nazi troops, along with 1,000 artillery pieces and 1,000 aircraft, have arrived at your city, with only 140,000 poorly armed Polish troops to defend it. For a time, these brave men would hold off the Germans. But soon their enemy would be bolstered by a vast army of 450 Soviet troops. 20,000 people would be killed in the city, and Hitler's vendetta against the Jew would be meted out in horrific acts of violence and murder. Perhaps even bring yourself into the more recent past. You're a Ukrainian mother living with her husband and two children. You both work, the children are in school, you do the normal things that most Western families do. But the ongoing attrition between your country and your big next-door neighbour, Russia, has come to a head. A war of words has been replaced by missiles, tanks and troops decimating your towns and cities. Your husband has had to leave his job in the bank. He's had to pick up a machine gun and go and fight. You don't know if you'll ever see him again. You and your children are hurriedly evacuated to Poland. Everything you knew has changed. Your neighbours were killed in an air raid. You haven't heard from your parents. Your worst fears come true. I'd hazard a guess that none of us here have ever experienced anything like this. We do not understand what it means to experience that sort of fear, I don't think. Perhaps you have. Well, I want us to hold on to that feeling this morning as we look at the rest of chapter 9. This is the feeling, the emotion, that would have come pouring over the first readers of John's revelation. The idea of an onslaught of unimaginable magnitude is what John's vision is stirring up in this part of the chapter. And let's continue on to see what I mean. So in verses 14 and 15, we see that this angel is different to the other one that came before. So all the others that came before. They, they were all mere onlookers to what unfolded at the sounding of their trumpets, whereas this angel is fully involved. It is this sixth angel that goes to these four angels that are abound at the river Euphrates. These angels have been kept ready for this very day, hour, sorry, very hour, day, month and year. And the text overemphasizes the time here. It puts all four of those bits of time in there. It makes it abundantly clear that nothing that follows is unplanned or unexpected. The language of being prepared here uses the Greek verb hetomazo, and it's found, you guessed it, seven times in the book. For those who have been coming quite a lot, you'll know that the number seven is very, uh, it found very often in the book of Revelation. For example, it's the same verb that uh, describes a preparation of a place of safety for the woman in a few chapters' time, in chapter 12. Or perhaps, uh, sorry, or the preparation of the new Jerusalem as a bride in chapter 21. What this tells us is that all that follows on from the blowing of this sixth trumpet is part of the plan. It's prepared for. God knows exactly what he's doing. And what is it that these angels are now allowed to do? Well, if it's all prepared by God, it must be something really good, mustn't it? Well, no. They're released to kill a third of mankind. Again, this is where we've got a battle with what we know about God's loving character and passages like this. How is this the work of a loving creator God? Well, the key is for us to not think of God sending these angels to do this catastrophic work, but rather that he has eventually allowed them to do so. Instead of seeing God act in some terrible way, understand that it is a result of his mercy that until now these angels have been prevented from bringing such destruction. 
like all the other plagues that come about at the blowing of the trumpets and at the breaking of the seals that we saw earlier, God is not the originator of the evil that follows. However, he does allow it to show itself, of what, show itself fully for what it is. In the end, we will see that in doing so, evil will finally bring about its own downfall. Verse 16 reveals the means by which this devastation would come about. A practically innumerable amount of mounted troops, ready like Genghis Khan, Hitler, Stalin or any other evil world leader set about but set on conquering through bloodshed and destruction. 200 million mounted troops or literally two myriads upon myriads. For the first century reader living amongst the might of the Roman Empire, this number wouldn't have gone unnoticed. A Roman army was made up of 25 legions or about 125,000 soldiers as well as an auxiliary army of about the same size. The vast army depicted here in Revelation is a thousand times that number. In fact, at that time, the population of the entire world was about that number. Sometimes it feels like the world is against you, doesn't it? Well, for those first readers, this passage is literally telling them that's the case. It's depicting an army the size of the whole world's population. Now again, this number I don't believe is to be taken literally, but to overemphasise the threat and the feeling of fear. For us reading today, we can easily skip over some of the important details that would have stood out like a sore thumb to first century readers. Another such detail is that the angels are bound at the river Euphrates. Now for us, it's a river that we've read about plenty of times in our Bibles, but other than that, it probably holds no great significance. However, for those living under the rule of Rome, it had a massive significance. Now, last, last time, when we looked at the first part of chapter 9, we saw that in the description of the locusts, there were strong similarities to one of the major threats to the Roman Empire, that of the barbarians to the north. The battles with these barbarians would in time play a major role in the downfall of that empire. Here, the text is even more explicit when referring to an even bigger threat to Rome, and this reference to the river Euphrates would make it abundantly clear to those first reading this letter back then. This is the sixth trumpet. And when we get to the last series of seven, so we've got three series of seven, haven't we? Uh, the seals, the trumpets and the bowls. When we get to the last series of seven, the bowls, in chapter 16, we read that the corresponding sixth bowl says this. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. What is the importance of the river Euphrates and who are these kings from the east and their insurmountable army? Well, here's a map showing the extent of the Roman Empire. That's the bit in green. Um, the other great empire shown on this map in blue is that of the Parthians to the east. They're based from modern-day Iran, but they spread far around. You can't see it on this map, but that empire stretched all the way to the Indus River in Pakistan. The red circle shown there was the established boundary between the two empires. And guess what river forms that natural boundary? You guessed it, the river Euphrates. Pompey had established that border in the first century BC, and it remained in John's day. When Parthians crossed the Euphrates, it was with one intention, to fight Romans. One writer would comment that the world's two most powerful empires were separated only by a river. Parthians were the arch-rivals of the Roman Empire, and they were far more feared than the barbarians to the north. Whilst Augustus had had some success in defeating the Parthians earlier on, later emperors would not have had the same success. 
Rome proudly claimed that it subjected the North, the South and the West to its rule. However, it admitted it could not do the same for the East. Parthian kings were known for their power and authority and their forces had a fearful reputation for being bold and intelligent in battle. There were even pagan prophecies about a Parthian invasion of Rome that increased the fear of these people. And even Jewish speculation suggested that Emperor Nero, the emperor just a little bit before Revelation was written, he had strongly persecuted the Christians. They believed that he hadn't in fact died, but he had in fact fled to the Parthians and would one day mount an attack on Rome from there. This legend was known as Nero Redivivus. My Latin's not really good. Um, or literally means Nero resurrected. And as we get into chapters 13 and 17, we possibly see how this myth is alluded to again. The Romans didn't fear many people, but they did fear the Parthians. And this detail about the Euphrates undoubtedly would have been clear to everyone from Jerusalem to Rome. Their worst political and military nightmare. This part of the vision follows on from the horrible sight of the massive torturing locusts and again reminds us that these are symbolic visions drawing on one fear and then on another, presenting an image of escalating terror, worst nightmares coming true. For the Jews too, the natural border of the Euphrates would have stirred up other bad memories from the past. The Assyrians and the Babylonians both would have crossed that river as they made their way down to attack and conquer the lands of Israel and Judah. Much of our Old Testament details the history of these invasions and the subsequent exiles. The depiction of the horses and the riders in the verses that follows is a blend of fantasy and reality to further the horrific imagery. For the first and only time in the book, John reminds his readers that the things he sees are a vision. He makes a clear distinction between what is physical reality and what is a spiritual vision. The three colours of the breastplates of the soldiers, red, dark blue and yellow, correspond to the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulphur that come from the horses' mouths. The combination of the horses having heads resembling the heads of lions in verse 17 and tails like snakes in verse 19 would again stir up thoughts of another mythical creature. If you remember the locust description, it had elements of the mythical manticore. Well, here the description owes much to the chimera, which was said to breathe fire, had a lion's head, and whose tail tail ended with a snake's head. However, this depiction owed even more to the enemy that we've already spoken about, the Parthians. The biggest military threat posed by the Parthians was that of their skilled horseback riders. These archers had perfected the art of riding backwards while firing their arrows behind them. They would often engage in battle with Roman soldiers from the vantage point of a hillside, They would charge down the hill and engage with the enemy before turning back up the hillside. As the Romans gave chase, they would turn round on their horses and they would devastate their pursuers with a volley of arrows. Rome lost a couple of legions before they learnt not to chase Parthians up hills. Verse 19 says that the power of the horses was in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. Romans had long remembered and feared this snake in the towel of the Parthian archers. Verses 20 to 21 is related, are related not just to the sixth trumpet, but to the plagues brought about by the seven seals and seven trumpets as a whole. Again, we are taken back to the plagues of Egypt. Remember, this whole book is saturated in the themes of the story of slavery in Egypt, captivity and oppression, judgment, 
opportunity to repent and rescue. Verse 15 told us that a third of mankind were to be killed. That number is greater than the accumulated deaths of all the wars of the 20th century put together. In today's numbers, it would be about two and a half billion people. But John isn't speaking in the 21st century. However, we are to take this. Sorry, however we are to take this number, the, the warning is clear. Many people will suffer and die because of war instigated by world leaders hell bent on domination and power. Whether in ancient Rome, uh, or in the Near East, in the wars of the Middle Ages, in the two world wars, or in more recent conflicts, the suffering and pain caused by such human evil and greed should be enough to cause those left standing to repent and turn back to their creator, shouldn't it? The devastation that they witness at the hands of other human beings should be enough to make them reflect on their own evil and sin. It should cause them to fall to their knees, pleading to be forgiven for their own acts of conflict against other humans and against God, and committing to a new life of kingdom building following the true Prince of Peace. It should be. However, we are told that the rest of mankind, or those who are not killed by these plagues, do not, in fact, turn from their wickedness. They respond in the same way that Pharaoh did to the plagues of Egypt. They do not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. In his verses we see echoes of Old Testament warnings about unfaithfulness to God, turning to idol worship and the works of your own hands, rather than worshipping the true God and trusting in him. Instead of turning back to God, we see that people continue to put their trust and faith in the idols of this world and in their own power and their own strength. The irony in all of that is that in rejecting the true God and his worship, they're actually worshipping and putting their trust in the very things that are bringing about their misery. Sadly, though, Christians themselves can easily fall into the same trap. We claim to be worshippers of God, but how often do we allow the idols of the 21st century to claim our affections? Passages such as this should shake us out of our complacency, should cause us to sit up and re-evaluate our worship and where it is placed. The reality is is that most of this book is written for Christians, not non-believers, Let's face it, not many non-believers would get this far on in the book. So the message is to Christians warning us against compromise with the world. This passage shows us that in various ways and at various times, the world's social orders will come tumbling down in the awful catastrophes of war and of disaster. We cannot find our security in the world. Only Christ is an adequate security. The point of John's message here in chapter 9 is sought in the message it conveys rather than in the details of the images. For the first readers, Rome and Parthia were opposing empires, both led by sinful, self-seeking humans. John uses language and metaphors that play into the fears of his day. One evil empire, Rome, feared an onslaught of attacks from another evil empire from the east, Parthia. Whilst earlier I may have poo-pooed the idea of the locust representing a modern-day attack helicopter... There is some benefit in using modern-day analogy to bring John's message to a modern reader to convey the same terror that it would have conjured up with someone living in the first century in Asia Minor. 
Every generation since has seen an empire rise up against another empire. And with it has come the fear of devastated lives, untold destruction of homes and communities, environmental catastrophe and more. Again, place yourself in the shoes of the Chinese farmer fearing the oncoming army of Genghis Khan, or the Jewish family living in Warsaw as Hitler advances ever closer, or the Ukrainian wife and mother as the tanks and missiles of Russia begin to amass at your country's borders. These are the emotions that John's words are intended to bring in this chapter. The book of Revelation does not sugarcoat life. There will be pain, there will be suffering, and most of it will be because of the evil heart of man. Evil is real and it brings about chaos and insecurity. The hybrid monstrous creatures of chaos that John describes in this chapter provide a stark contrast against the ordered and orderly living creatures who worship God around the throne earlier in the book. The forces of evil are naturally destructive and they lie behind human empires. But true followers of Jesus do not need to fear any evil empire. Satan's kingdom is divided and God uses one evil empire to bring about the downfall of another. We've seen it time and time again in our Bibles. He raised up Babylon to judge Judah, but then raised up Persia to judge the Babylonians for their own sin. Sometime after this book was written, he raised up other kingdoms and nations who had played their part in the fall of the greatest human empire to have ever existed, of Rome. They in turn would be destroyed by other empires, and so it continues and it continues, and it will continue until Jesus returns. As we read passages like this, it's easy for us to start questioning why God's plan looks like this. If he is all-powerful, why can't he just make things right now? Well, he could. But if he did that now, there would be millions upon millions of people who would forfeit the opportunity of repentance and acceptance into the only kingdom that matters, that of God's kingdom. And we've seen, there is a, as we've seen, there's a purpose behind God allowing evil to do its worst to give people the opportunity to repent. And whilst we're told here that many, many fail to take that opportunity in spite of the devastation that they witness at the hands of evil man, as we continue on in this book and into the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets, we will see that God has a force much stronger than any human army or evil kingdom, a force that has the power to change the world and bring people to true repentance. And we're going to begin to look at that next time. As we finish this morning, though, what does this passage say to us today? Well, we can't help but see the reality behind the threats described here, can we? When we turn on our TVs, when we read our newspapers. The devastation caused by warfare and human conquest. Evil empires exist very much today as they did back then. As Christians, we are to be instruments of peace and bringers of justice in a world that is torn apart by men's greed. How can we actively involve ourselves in bringing God's kingdom over and against those kingdoms of mankind? However, to do so, we must ensure that we have not allowed ourselves to fall into the same trap as the rest of the world, those who cling to and worship idols over the true God. That's our starting point in making a difference. Evaluate your own heart. Do a heart check. Who or what is foremost in your time, in your affections, in your worship? Give yourself a spiritual MOT. And when you are sure that your spiritual engine is running smoothly, get out there and start making a difference.